0: Welcome to the Cyber Insider, MCSoft's podcast all about cybersecurity. Your hosts today are Brett Callow, Threat Analyst here at MCSoft, and I'm Luke Connolly, Partner Manager. We're very excited to have Sherri DeGrippo with us today. Sherri's previous employers include Proofpoint, SecureWorks, and the National Nuclear Security Administration. And she's currently the Director of Threat Intelligence Strategy at Microsoft. She's based in Atlanta and is the proud parent of a dog, Called Boris Karloff. <laughs> Welcome, Sheridan. Thanks for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Luke. Thanks for having me, Brett. It's great to meet you guys.
0: Okay, I did a quick inventory of the Boris's that I can name off the top of my head, and I came up with uh, Boris Johnson, Boris Yeltsin, Boris Becker, Boris Bassey, who's the chess uh, grandmaster, Boris Batnov of uh, Boris and Natasha fame from the Flintstones, and I have to ask, how did your dog come by the name of Boris Karloff?
1: He was actually named Boris Karloff in the shelter that picked him up as a stray and I was his foster through the rescue organization that works with that shelter. They said his name is Boris Karloff, and I said, it sure is. Beautiful. He's a wonderful dog. He is a part uh, Australian cattle dog and chow chow mix, so he has a really interesting, fun personality. Um, He is just incredibly well-behaved and incredibly sweet, and I am very lucky to have found such a sweet, well-behaved dog, and a a not-so-fun fact, about Boris is that he actually has been shot and has a tattoo. So um, as a stray, he was shot and he has buckshot in him that is not affecting him and he is fine now. And when he was neutered, he got a tattoo to indicate that he had been neutered, which is standard procedure. But I always say that uh, Boris and I, between the two of us, have an average of one tattoo each.
0: And uh, in my research, I would just like to add one more thing is that I know that Boris likes to sleep in Uh, He's been known to stay on the couch until uh, noon, which is beyond sleeping in in my books, but uh, to each his own.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, A lot of people say, oh, the dog woke me up at 7 a.m. Boris has never woken me up in the morning.
2: Not once. Good. Okay, so move on. Not everyone has a clear understanding of what threat intel actually is or even why it is. Can you explain and explain why it matters?
1: Yeah, I would love to. I'd love to talk about that. So, I think that there's a lot of debate about this in the industry, and ultimately, that is the question is, what really is the value? Why does threat intelligence really matter? And first, I define threat intelligence really simply. A coworker and friend of mine, Christopher Glyer, gave me this definition very succinctly one day. He said, we talk about what threat actors do. And to me, that's threat intelligence. That's really the foundation of what threat intelligence is is what do threat actors do? And you can really get deep into that and you can expand it. But ultimately, what are threat actors doing? That's the threat intelligence seed. That's the foundation. So the way I like to think about it as well is, let's say, you know, you have your home, right? And I come to you and I say, I can sell you a security system to protect your home. And I can make sure that nobody breaks into your house successfully. A lot of people say, okay, that sounds pretty good. And I say, but... I have an extra thing that i can add on for you every person that tries to break into your home i can tell you their first name they say, oh okay that's kind of cool I say i can tell you their height weight where they live and what model of car they drive they say wow that sounds really cool now i say and i can tell you the model of flashlight and the type of lock picks that they're using to break into your home they say wow this is really incredible i, I want this information this is fascinating I'm really going to need this. And I so I can say, I can protect your home. No successful break-ins. People say, yeah, it's good. And I say, everyone who tries to break into your home, I can tell you their hair color, their height, their weight, where they live. And I can tell you who else is home in your neighborhood they tried to break into in and in addition to yours. People get really excited by this idea. They say, I want to know, are they breaking into rich people's houses, poor people's houses, big, small? I want to know all this. I say, great, but you're going to have the same efficacy of people breaking into your house either way. Now you're starting to talk about a maturity level, right? Like if your protections are the same either way, why does intelligence matter? Well, intelligence matters from a large ecosystem that helps us design the locks and windows and security cameras and all of these systems. So threat intelligence really, really matters at threat intelligence uh, at protection vendors. So those of us that have that maturity to use it, it really matters for us. And then there starts to be a difference curve. What can you really do actionably to better protect yourself with threat intelligence, which is sort of, when does it go from really expensive in-depth gossip to being something really useful and actionable that increases your security posture? And that's a different answer for every individual and every organization. But ultimately, these are all questions that we're talking about in the industry as security programs and postures mature. We have to decide what the role of threat intelligence is at each organization, which is not the same. It's not one size fits all.
0: And is is threat intelligence mainly for larger organizations? I mean, you gave a good profile there, but at what point should smaller growing businesses look to leverage it? Uh, when and how does it start to add value to their security position?
1: That's a really good question. And I think organizations need to really sit down and and take the questions that you just said and and ask them amongst their security practitioners, their CISO, and their CFO, and kind of their legal department, and what what do we really wanna get out of this? But I think ultimately, organizations want threat intelligence because of their unique perspective on their own organization. No threat intelligence provider will ever know more about your organization and how it operates than you. And so you kind of have to sit and be realistic and say, If I give my security operations teams a lot of information about attackers, threat actors, how they operate, what they do, are they equipped with the right tooling mechanisms, permissions, and skill levels to be able to use that to better protect us? And in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. I think the thing that organizations need to start with is, will I use this intelligence immediately? And That really kind of is the window that I like to look at is can it make a difference for me today or do I have to build a program over the next six months to really take advantage of it? You're probably not ready. Like if I can give you IOCs and actor information and forensics about a piece of malware and you say, yeah, my team can put this to use today to create better protections and detections within my environment you're good to go. If you say, ooh, we would, it would take us a couple hours or days or weeks to really look at this and understand it and create something with it, then you need to start building your internal programs around how do you start intelligence better.
0: I'll just point out, you mentioned uh, threat actor IOCs. Indicators of compromise. They're basically little breadcrumbs that have been left behind if a threat actor has gained access to a system and they've you know, been mucking about.
1: Yeah, I love an IOC. Um, I think IOC feeds get a bad rap because people see them as just kind of like a blast of information a lot of times. But if you're able to programmatically create detections and hunting out of an IOC feed, that's a really mature way to handle IOCs. And and I think being able to manage that data is a really hard job, right? Because you've got IOCs coming in from your own organization, and then you've got IOCs coming in from external threat intelligence and detection vendors. So you have to kind of Differentiate, normalize, and hunt through these big, disparate fields of data, which can be really hard for a lot of operations individuals. But if you get that down right, IOC is ultimately an atomic IOC. Atomic indicators ultimately are like your most um, indicative piece that you can make attribution off of. So if you have them and have them programmed well, you're
2: in a great place. I know you're interested in threat actor psychology. How does that present for us until?
1: So have you guys ever seen the Michael Mann movie Heat? (laughs) So he did Miami Vice. That's the same director that did the Miami Vice series and the Miami Vice movies. I think if you haven't seen Heat for the Michael Mann Miami Vice movie you should watch it because it's one of the best threat actor psychology examples I've ever seen. Another one that's a pretty good example of threat actor psychology is Beverly Hills Cop. Um, Axel Foley is the cop in that movie but he's also kind of a threat actor because he's like going up to restaurant maitre d's and be like oh yes I'm I'm you know the sausage king of Chicago like Ferris Bueller he's got like these different personas that he uses and these different ways to kind of sneak into places and he it's a classic heist movie where those guys are like just one more job you know this is gonna be the last one and then I'm out I think that that psychology really plays over into the cyber threat landscape too there are people that Think about threat as threat actors and try to be successful whether their motivations are financial they're uh, working on behalf of a nation state in order to do espionage or exfiltration ultimately there is a criminal and a threat actor psychology that comes into play to sort of understand what those objectives are what the motives are what's the working cadence some crime where actors are I won't say lazy, but they like to take a vacation, right? Like they like their time off. They take nice long summer holidays. It's it's a mindset that I think helps understand what threat actors might do or might wanna do. And we can all kind of embody that, right? Anybody can sort of pick up a mindset of, if I wanted to steal money from bank accounts, what would I do and where would I start? And if you really take 10 minutes, close your eyes, turn off your phone, and start thinking, I want to do this, and there's plenty of criminal options, how would I do it, what would I do? If I told you you needed to come up with a million dollars in 30 days, would you steal it from a bank? Would you send malware out? Would you compromise a CFO? Would you use social engineering? Would you use a vulnerability and exploit it? How would you do that? And that's kind of that same mindset that the threat actors are, are dealing with, is I've got this objective and I have to get it done in this amount of time. What are my routes to get there? How do I
2: do it? If you want to steal a million dollars in 30 days, how would you do it?
1: Um, I would never do that, Brett. Uh, I am a law-abiding, total good kid, goody two-shoes good kid. But I think if I were a threat actor, um, I mean, I would definitely probably do malware into a lower level uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable employee at a medium sized business. Invoicing fraud is one of my favorites. You just get into an approved vendor system at a medium sized business and just start sending invoices from various fake companies, get those invoices paid into a variety of um compromised bank accounts that you're purely using for mule purposes and for money laundering. Get all of it into those bank accounts and then enjoy your million dollars that you need for whatever, for charity, for the dog rescue that's what I would do.
0: How have you seen threat intelligence evolve over the years? And and what trends do you sh- uh, see shaping it in the future? I mean, we we just recently interviewed Jackie um, Burns about uh, from Chainalysis about the blockchain and using the blockchain to trace the money. So wh- what do you see? What have you seen in the past? And how do you see it, uh, threat intelligence evolving?
1: I think, honestly, in the past, there's been just sort of a gold rush of get as much intelligence as you can. And we've evolved now to the point where we're analyzing our ability as organizations to use that threat intelligence and what it's really getting for us. And I think that we're starting to see the value of where's the telemetry coming from? Whose signals are these? How vetted are they? How prone are they to FPs? Like, where are we really going And looking at that as an evaluation, I think in the early days of of threat intel in the cyber landscape, probably let's say the early days would be 10 years ago. You know, threat intel has been around for a long time, but I think 10 years ago is when it, it got to be more like an industry and not just something used in the public sector. People are now evaluating, can I really make use of this? And what do I need to do with it? And am I equipped? And that's where the tooling is starting to get evolved. That's where threat hunting is really starting to come into play. People are learning how to hunt um, in ways they never did before. It's funny that our industry has these alternate definitions for hunt and fish, but that essentially is kind of where defenders are really looking now is, is my hunt time through threat intelligence information, is knowing this information helping me improve the posture of my organization for their security program.
2: What emerging trends do you find particularly concerning? And what can organizations be doing to defend against them or to prepare to defend against them?
1: That's a good question. I think I see I think some of the trends that we're seeing that are a little concerning are, you know, sort of where AI will take us in terms of what threat actors will do. I agree that we don't really see a ton, a ton, a ton of that. It really is in that early experimental stage, I think, for threat actors, but I don't think it will stay that way for very long. I also think that from a trend perspective, we're starting to see CFOs get more in the driver's seat with security. They're the financial leaders of the company, and they feel very much um, on the hook when it comes to data loss, reach, financial loss. They're getting into the conversations and making technology decisions in ways that five or 10 years ago, the CFO was not having meetings with the security vendors to understand how the products work, what kind of you know guarantees that company might have for them, what do the products really get them, what kind of reporting is coming out of it. You're seeing CFOs start to ask a lot more questions now. They're in the conversation more than they've ever been before. And I think also from a trend perspective, we can't let go of the realities that we're sort of constantly surrounded now, whether it's a traditional laptop, the cloud, an IOT device or a mobile device, it's everywhere. My house is fully IOT and it really stresses me out sometimes because I'm like, I can do so many things, I love this. And then I think, oh my gosh, this is really potentially a big risk factor. Um, so we're back to that kind of place of weighing convenience and security, which isn't a trend, it's a perennial favorite. But we're having to do that with so many new different platforms and devices
0: than before. We're speaking with uh, Sherrod DeGrippo, the Director of Threat Intelligence Strategy at Microsoft. Um, Shared, in the past, you talked about social engineering as a TTP. Um, for our audience, TTP stands for Tactics, Te- Techniques, and Procedures, describing the methods that threat actors use when executing an attack. Can you talk a little about a little bit about that and in particular why it matters?
1: Sure, I love social engineering. This is is another plug for Beverly Hills Cop. The two movies that have some of the best real world examples of social engineering, I'll give you three. Here are my three favorite social engineering films to watch. Ghostbusters, number one. Those guys are social engineers like crazy, especially the scene in the mayor's office. Beverly Hills Cop and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Teenagers are the ultimate social engineers. They are so good at it, especially when they're trying to hide the fact that their babysitter died and um, they are covering so they can have a summer alone. I think that social engineering, of course, goes back to being a TTP, like you said, Luke, that it's so human, right? It's a human connection. And then if you go to the threat actor psychology side of it, it creates this incredible like world of imagination. So the question there is, if I told you, you could, for all intents and purposes in the digital world, become anyone you want. So you can assume the identity of any person that you want, any person with email, any person with a login, like, who would you become? You might say, I would become a super, you know, somebody that's on the billionaire's list. I would become a lottery winner. I would become financial advisor at a big bank. Essentially, once you've got this new identity, you can walk into the virtual bank, right? You can log into someone's online banking. You can walk into uh, a virtual car dealership or you can walk into a virtual CPA's office. You can start moving things around. You can start looking at data. You can start pulling money out as if you were that person. And so social engineering in many ways is the result of making the world believe that you are someone you're not, or that you have some kind of capability or a trait that you don't. And so it's sort of fun to imagine, like, who would you be? What would you do if you could talk to anyone as anyone else, including systems? What's the best thing to be? All right, you have to answer. Luke, Brett, what are you going to
2: be? <laughs> I actually don't have an answer for that.
1: I always sort of um, carry the story out that I would be like Taylor Swift or Beyonce's manager so that I could just give my friends free concert tickets and then scoop off large percentages of ticket sales money um, and probably fight the ticket companies like Ticketmaster, the way that Robert Smith from The Cure did with his recent tour. And I would, you know, get in her email and say, look, you need to get these fees and fraud under control. Um, so I'd get money, tickets for my friends, and try to influence um, some of the way that ticket sales are done because I've missed out on sold out shows myself.
0: I guess it's a question of are you looking for the financial gain or are you looking for some other sort of the gratification? I think of that uh, DiCaprio, Tom Hanks movie where I can't remember the name, but, but you know, he's the he, he makes a believe he's you a can. Yeah, he's a surgeon. He's an aer- aer- airplane pilot. He gets to do all the things that he wanted to do just to Im- impress himself and his family. And that's the, in itself the, the end objective, right?
1: Absolutely. And and so Catch Me If You Can is a great example, Luke. Like that's a great social engineering, a great fraud um, kind of movie where somebody does all of these criminal things. You can see the psychology behind it. You can see how the social engineering works, and it's all in the real world. It's actually a lot easier to do Most of that stuff in the digital world, I can go, let's say, into a system and create a lot of these identities. Maybe I could create someone into a pilot database or a surgery database as an attending physician. It's actually easier today to do those things than it was when um, Frank Abendale Jr. was doing it in the movie.
0: And Of course, this is somewhat topical. We're recording this uh, in in the last week of August in, in 2023, and Kevin Mitnick just passed away uh, about a month or two ago, and he was really the godfather of social engineering.
1: Yeah, a lot of his legend um, as a hacker really comes from that initial social engineering capability, and he had such a history in the industry of of knowing how to do that. For ill or for, for good or for ill, he was very well known as being one of the top social engineers, uh, especially um, one who gave away their secrets that we've ever seen.
2: What's your most interesting war story? Well, the most interesting case you've encountered—I
1: don't know if it's the most interesting—but it was certainly one of the most. I think riveting was a situation where a threat actor sent some emails as if they were a person's the CEO's assistant and said, "I need you to go buy gift cards," which is a very typical sort of threat, you know, fraud that we see a lot. Gift carding—if um, you get them on your phone, sometimes they'll say, "Hey, this is so and so. I need you to buy me gift cards of some kind." So it was a threat like that. And what was interesting to me about the story is that we were also able to review the communication from various drugstores as this person went from drugstore to drugstore trying to purchase large, large quantities of gift cards at once. And the drugstore employees were all saying, hey, I know you want to buy $5,000 worth of these gift cards, but I really think you're being scammed. And so we could see the communications where the employees of the store We're trying so hard to tell this person, look, I'll sell you these gift cards, but I really don't want to. I really don't think you should. And, you know, in one case, a manager at the store was involved and the manager said, I barred them from buying them here. But I know my coworker manager at another store down the street, they showed up there trying to buy the gift cards. And we keep telling them they can't buy the gift cards, And so they actually called the police and said, can you please talk to this person and tell them we really think that they're under fraud. We really think that, you know, the person that they think is telling them to spend all this money on gift cards is not who they say they are. And so that was kind of where the incident information ended was us watching all of these wonderful (laughs) drugstore employees trying so hard to coordinate and help this person as they denied to sell them these gift cards. And finally, you know, having to call the police to hopefully lend some authority to stop spending this money um many stores actually now have instituted caps on how many gift cards you can buy at once just because the fraud is so terrible but i thought it was a nice a nice thing to see that all these employees were sort of pulling their hair out going how do we convince this customer that buying five thousand dollars worth of gift cards for your ceo's assistant is not a normal thing and this isn't really real they're being defrauded and so it was sort of nice to see you know One of the emails was like, I'm going to get manager approval to deny them to sell it. And the manager said, yes, don't sell it. So it was kind of nice to see.
0: You mentioned AI and and it's really been in the mainstream for about a year now. Um, Chat GPT came out uh, at the end of last year and we're seeing new AI tools and it's really uh, being embraced on a day-to-day basis um, really, really quickly. It's been astounding. And I'll just mention that Microsoft, uh, your employer, has been at the forefront of the technology with its massive investment in OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT. There's also been rumblings of the potential for AI to be used by the bad guys, either by creating malware itself or by generating convincing messages for use in social engineering and phishing attacks. How do you see... Uh, AI technologies, changing the landscape of threat intelligence and and defense?
1: I am certainly not an AI expert. Um, that's such a developing um, side of the world. That's not something that I'm 100% an expert in. I actually use chat GPT so much. I really see the potential. And I think when you go back to the threat actor psychology side of things, right, they're open to using any tools that can help them, so whether that's AI or ChatGPT or just automation or APIs and Excel, you know, we've seen threat actors leverage all kinds of productivity tools um, to keep their campaign straight, to keep their uh, attack chain straight. I think that essentially this will be another tool in the tool belt at some point. What exactly that will look like at mass scale? I don't think we've really, really seen that yet. And I don't think that we can articulate even what those trends will be until we start seeing more evidence beyond um, some of the testing and sort of pioneering attempts um, that are out there.
2: To wrap up a question that we ask everybody, if you were a legislator and it was (laughs) your part to ban the payment of ransom demands, would you do it?
1: Um, that's a great question. So to ban the power to pay ransom demand, Mm. that's a tough one. I think, um, you know, ultimately the thing that I would tell organization is know whether or not you will pay what your plan is, who is authorized to say that you'll pay, who's authorized to increase it. If you need to increase it, not to be negative, but simply because if somebody says, oh my gosh, we have ransomware, are we going to pay? everyone in that trust circle already knows the answer already knows how much they're planning to pay the scariest thing that i can imagine really in this scenario is being under ransom and not knowing how you're going to handle getting out of it so I say plan for the worst hope for the best with that from a legislation perspective that's not something i know a ton about i know that it's talked about quite a bit i think ultimately When we look at policy, we've got to look to the organizations to set policies that mean that they're hardening their own organizations, hopefully to avoid a ransomware of that at all.
0: And with that, I'd like to thank you, Sherrod, for joining us today. Your, Your experience and insights have given us a very interesting discussion. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Stay up to date on the latest in cybersecurity by subscribing to our podcast.
1: Thanks, Luke. Have a great flight, Brett.